Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Right, welcome back to the Two Nollies podcast. I'm your host, Timmy Long. Join my good man, James Leonard. Hi, everybody. And today we have a very special guest. It's Mick Devine, the clinical director of Table Lodge. How are you doing, Mick? Timmy, I'm doing good. Good. Yeah. Good. And thank you. And thank you for having me. It's nice to be here. Thank you very much for coming here. And do you know, the usual process here with us is we always ask our guest, who are they and where they're from? So can you give us a little bit of a background story to who Mick Devine is? Okay. Mick Devine. Um, I'm from a small village in the North County, Dublin, okay. called Lusk. Mm. Um, I was born there in the early 60s, lived in the village. Our house was right on the square. Um, and a real feature of Lusk is a round tower that dates back to the 10th century. And that our back garden backed onto the graveyard where the round tower was. So... The round tower loomed large in my, in my, um, in my background. Um, it was a small village, you know, there was 12 of us in the, in the class in school. Um, I'm one of five kids, middle of five kids. Um, so we lived in that house. There was eight of us lived in a small house, three bedroomed mm. house. Um, would the village have been a bit like Rush? Yes, it was next door to Rush. Yeah, I, that's where my ancestors are from. Is that right? Yeah, so my grandfather was from Rush. Yes. My half of me is a dub. Yeah. My dad is from Inchicore, but it, even in my, uh, my dad is from Inchicore, which is south inner city Dublin. Yes. And in, in a terraced house, you know, in, in, in south inner city Dublin, living up top of each other. Yes. Kind of concrete jungle. But out the little garden, you used to have a glass house with the tomatoes and the strawberries yes. and that part of the world. It's famous for that, isn't it? It is, mm. yes. So the Leonards would be a strong family name in Russia. Exactly. The Leonards, that's, that's where my name comes from. Yes. There's a lot, so many Leonards and a great history up there yes. as well. Yes. And uh, going back through the lineage then, um, we're related to travellers called Connors. So at Connors Travellers, they were after coming into Russia after being ran out of or leaving. Yeah. They, they were, and then there was Leonard's there involved in piracy and all interesting stuff. Yes, and yeah. okay. But it's right on the, on the coast. Yes. And Irish Sea. Yes. Yes. And Rush then is the, Lusk is the next village in if you're going from, from Rush into the city. But we would have had Connors in our class in school. Mm. Um, Mick Connors. Yeah. Uh, as travelling people. A highly populated uh, town. Very small. Yeah. It's very small. In the census, I think it was 2010 census, Lusk was the fastest growing town in Ireland. Is it far from Dublin city centre? Well, it's kind of getting closer and closer all the time. It's about 15 miles, but it practically 
stretches all the way in now because you mm. think, you know, Santry and Drumcondra have nearly come out to Swords and Swords yeah. is nearly out to Lusk now. Yeah. And it's one just one big sprawling metropolis yeah. now. Yeah, Dublin is the big, small, greedy, isn't it? It's yeah, but even like Kildare now was like mm. Greater Dublin. The Greater right? Dublin area, yeah. yeah. But um, so that's where you grew up. What was school like? How did you, like, did you go to college after school or? Yeah. Yeah, school was all right. Um, I went to the Christian Brothers and Swords and did me leave and start there in 1980, a uh, time of great doom and gloom in the country. Mm-hmm. Um, I went to UCD and studied arts, uh, studied English and philosophy, and then went on to do a HDIP in education, uh, qualified as a teacher, um, spent a year teaching in Port Marnock, also up that neck of the woods. And then I went working with the Redemptress uh, Religious Order. They were doing a school retreat team. Um, and then I did further training, All Hallows College in Drumcondra. Met the woman I married on that course. Oh. Went to... Uh, Are you still married? I am. Oh, hey. Yeah. Oh, that's a long time ago. Yeah, we were married in 1989. Fair yeah, yeah, I went. We we met in All Hallows in 1986, mm. and then I went to live in England. Mm. She's Mancunian. She's from Manchester. Okay, and United Man City. United. Very oh, good. Very good. She's the right James is good book. So yeah, uh, <laughs> yes. I wear it on my. I see. Like a badge of honor. I see. Yes. I was on. We were on the Today Show the other day with Dahi Amara, and Dahi asked me, "Was uh, was I a United fan?" Because we were covering the United story. Yeah. And I said, "I am, but I couldn't show my Man United tattoos. My biceps was too big for the show." <laughs> <laughs> and I was, I, I was very proud to mention that live on the telly as well. Yeah. Uh, but he looked very. His biceps looked very small next to mine. Didn't <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I always feel fit and strong until I stand okay, next right. to Timmy for photo. <laughs> okay. Well, I, 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 I won't take my. Bicep. So did you go and watch Man United? Was that a thing? Would you be back in Fort England? Yeah. No, I was actually a Leeds fan. I might as well come clean. My dad is a Leeds fan. Yeah, well, every, yeah, that was the, that was, they were, they were the 1970s. Team, the Dan Reavy team. The back Dan Reavy team. My brother yeah. Keith is a Leeds fan. Yeah. Uh, but it's not, not like that anymore, it's just not? No, it's no. not. My son got into Manchester United, so I decided I'd follow along with him then. At least you broke the cycle of trauma anyway. Did, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you could even say got into a bit of recovery from that. But they are, Leeds actually had a great run back in the 90s. Did Manchester did, United, yeah, Leeds did. Yes, did. They were in the semi-final of the Champions League right, in the early yeah. 90s. They like, were handy side back yeah, then. Yeah. Gordon Strachan and... Yeah. Who's even, their centre forward? Even yeah. after that, then they had like Harry Kuhl and Viduka up front. Yeah, yeah Viduka was Lee Boyer, yeah. Yeah. Ian Hart at left back. Remember? Yeah, that was a strong. Yeah. And what was your man's name? He was the goalkeeper, was Lee Paul Boyer Robbins. Lee Boyer, he was he brilliant. Was tough, tough cookie. Dominic Matteo. Yeah. They were in the semi final of the Champions yeah. League. Yeah, David O'Leary was the manager. Who's their goalkeeper again? He was Paul Robinson. Yeah, good keeper as well. Yeah. Did, um, no. Who was the centre half? There was Lucas Radby. Remember him, South African. He yeah, was he by. was. Uh, do you know what? No, he'd remind you of. Um, he'd remind you of Van Dijk. Back yeah, there. he was just a tough, tough player. Like yeah, not a many, big presence not much in the yeah. Yeah. But we digress. Yeah. We've a habit digress, of digressing. Yeah. Yeah. I had gone away from Leeds by the time they had that success. <laughs> it's the 1970s team that I was following. Yeah, and then following United with me, with me young fella. And what were you doing in England? Were you working in England? Yeah, I worked in England. I was teaching in England. In a Catholic secondary school in 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 um, Lancashire, a place called Cone, 
Nelson and Cohen, not not too far further on from Burnley. Um, I started there in 1990 and I trained as a counsellor there actually in um, Manchester University and I had a deal with the head teacher that I would offer a counselling service to the school in return for him paying the fees for the counselling. So that worked out. That worked out very well. I was there in 1986, offered the counselling service and met, you know, the youngsters who are struggling mm-hmm. to stay in the school system yeah. would be referred up to me. Um, and they were delighted to not be in the class and to be coming up for a bit of counselling and everyone else was thinking, what's going on here? Uh, this doesn't seem fair. And, uh, cause I was hired as a teacher and the other teachers were down the classroom with, with 30 lads and I was up in the counselling room with one fella. So they were thinking that, that's, so it, so we, 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 we worked away at it for five or six years and kind of integrated the counselling service into the, I was using it to get hours as well and get me accreditation as a counsellor. And yeah. um, I did a bit of volunteer work with what was called the Alcohol Information Centre in Preston. I was living in Preston and they had alcohol information centres, which were free drop in services for people with alcohol problems. And I start, I cut my teeth there as a counsellor, really working with people who mm. uh, had alcohol problems. And it was a, an outpatient counselling service. People would come once a week and we'd make a plan and see, could we um, help manage the drinking or reduce the drinking or try and solve some of the problems that were leading to the drinking. Were you always drawn to that type of work or was, did, did you think that the teaching kids ran its yeah. course and you were looking for yeah. something different? I wasn't uh, always attracted to the addiction counselling. That, um, I wasn't always attracted to that, but I knew soon after teaching started that it wasn't going to be my yeah. career, that I wasn't going to be doing it till I was 65. Mm, yeah. I knew that wasn't going to be the case. I didn't, I kind of got attracted into the addiction field accidentally, accidentally in one way. And then when I actually got into the field, I realized, sure, there's piles of addiction in my family and, mm. and, um, it was the place for me to be really. Mm-hmm. Um, but we were, Living over in Preston, we had had our second child and we decided we really wanted to them to grow up in Ireland. So we wanted to come home. And at that time, the drugs task forces were starting and uh, the addiction counselling was becoming known as a thing. Mm. And the heroin problem in Dublin was really kicking off. And um, the Department of Health were seeing addiction counselling might really be a uh, a way of responding to the growing addiction problem. So every time you looked in the paper, they were looking for addiction counsellors, either in the um, Eastern Health Board, as it was called at the time, mm-hmm. or down in Cork and Kerry. So I came over and did a few interviews. I was interviewed in um, Arbor House. Are we talking mid-1990s? Um, 1996. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we we moved back. Uh, on um, Halloween, the 31st of October, 1996. That's my birthday. Is that right? I was born on 31st of October, 1985. Okay. Uh, so Just yeah. to no side note. <laughs> no, that's important. <laughs> that's an important piece of information. Yeah, and do you, know who else, know do you know who else is born on the same day? Seems we're on Man United, like Dennis <laughs> Orwell and Marcus Rashford. Is that right? Really? Three United legends. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> All right, back to me. <laughs> But yeah, yeah, so you, you, yeah. so just to put it in a bit of context, around 1996, you had the Robert Report, 
which was Pat Rabbit, which was a That's report right, yeah. into drug use. Yeah. And in that report, I found that the heroin problem is our, in Ireland was confined to six or seven uh, areas in Dublin mm-hmm. and in North Cork City. Mm-hmm. And the government, then there was Veronica Gairdham's murdered in 1996, mm-hmm. Concerned Parents Against Drugs mm-hmm. was marching on the streets, vigilante gangs. Mm-hmm. And it was like the government had to come up with a way yeah. of combating drug use that wasn't just criminalization. So it was looking at addressing poverty and social exclusion. So the drugs task forces were set up, yeah. set up, Garda Youth Diversion Projects and all mm-hmm. these other things. Mm-hmm. And th- this is where you come in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there was 12 drugs task forces set up in Dublin and one set up in Cork. Yeah. And I was just coming in at the at the, at the the start of that. Um, I was interviewed in Arbor House and I was on a panel. And then we moved over to Ireland. Um, my wife's family is from Derry Nan and, and, and Kerry. Oh, that place well. And, Pardon? I know that place well. Do you know? Yeah. Yeah, that's where her mother was from. Beautiful so we place. went there when we arrived over in Ireland and then um, moved from there into Cork and living now in, in, um, out by Bandon. Um, and then a post came up. The woman who started Tabor Lodge was interviewing me the day I was interviewed for, for Aber House. Mm. And um, then a post came up in Tabor Lodge shortly after. And I was appointed to that post, started there in February 1997. Can you give us a small bit of the backstory of how Table Lodge started, who started it, and maybe a little bit about how it developed into what it is today? Mm-hmm. Um, in the 1980s, the Sisters of Mercy were, uh, at the time, you know, there was the Mercy Hospital in Cork and lots of Mercy convents where the Mercy Sisters were involved in ministry to families in Cork. And they were finding that in a lot of cases, the, the, the poverty of Cork families had, was in large part due to the alcoholism of the father. So they thought it might be a wiser move for them to see could they help men get sober, as well as their work in hospitals and mm-hmm. schools. And the Tabor Lodge um, facility used to be a holiday home that the sisters would 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 um, use every summer to get away from hospitals or schools, wherever it was they were doing. So that was assigned as a in the mid 80s, that was earmarked to be a, an addiction treatment center. And Sister Margaret Kiley was the founder of Tabor Lodge. She went off to Hazelton, where the Minnesota model was born up in um, up by Minnesota, up in the um, twin cities up by Chicago, the north of the mm. United States. And she spent a year there training as an addiction counselor and came back and made ready then to, to open the center. Center opened at the start of uh, January 1989. Can you explain to people what Minnesota model is? Well, the Minnesota model started out life as, um, and started in 1949. The AA Alcoholics Anonymous started in 1935 and um, a big part of the AA program, as you probably know, is you reach out to other people who are suffering from alcoholism and the way you maintain your sobriety is to be helping other people get sober. So one way the alcoholic people in recovery reached out and met people who are struggling was in the psychiatric units of the hospitals. So they might visit the hospital and ask the staff, could they take someone out to a local meeting and have them back by 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock, whatever it was. And as time went on, the staff of the hospitals realized that in some cases, when these 12 step guys came to take someone out and brought them back, 
the revolving door mechanism stopped for some of these guys and they, they didn't show up again to be dried out. So they started wondering what's going on in the AA rooms that seems to be working. And then they got together in, 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 in Hazelden, the, the, the mental health professionals and the people in recovery got together to see, could we put a program together that had the best of the psychological knowledge at the time, plus whatever it was, was happening in the 12 step rooms and devise a program that you could systematically invite addicted people into to be resident in for, for a four week period to see if it would help them dry out, get a bit of distance from the whole crisis of their addiction, start reflecting on what is what is addiction, how is addiction active in me, and what can I do about it using the 12 steps as a guideline. Mm. And the 12 steps are, are a, an excellent guideline, I would believe, mm. in, in, in managing addiction. Yeah. Um, and so they set up a program and, you know, it grew, it grew from there. Did I hear that the 28 day piece came from the fact that in America, when they were starting it out, the insurance companies would yes. only cover people for a period of eight yes. weeks? Yes, for four weeks. Yeah. For, for, yeah, for, for four weeks. For four weeks program, yeah. Uh, so, and then that was exported. And yes. that's what we have in Table Lodge. That's moment. what we have in Table Lodge and in other centres in, in, um, Around Ireland Talbot as well. Grove. Talbot Grove. The Rutland. Yeah, Rutland. Asherie. Yeah, Asherie. But that 28 days, that, like it's I've intense. been through Table Lodge, it's a tough, it's mm. a 28 day program where there's no real break in between. It's 100% from the beginning to the end intense in terms mm. of counselling, mm. you getting to know what addiction is, mm. you facing any bit of um, denial that you may have yeah. around your own addiction, whatever it may be. Mm. And it's about, there's, I like the inter interaction as well with the family, mm. where the family members get the opportunity mm. to talk about mm their part, how, how, how the, your addiction has, has, has hurt them. Mm. Because when somebody is clear and their mind is, isn't as fogged up as it is before they come into table lodge, they can't really see that. But when they get in there and there's a bit of clarity, you know, the fogness is, is starting to leave a little bit and, and they're going through the different emotional stuff and bits and pieces. Then it's time for the family to tell them how they're feeling mm. and how it was for them during yeah. that person's life of addiction. Yeah. That's that's a, a, an amazing can aspect you, to it. Can you mm. remember, Timmy? You probably can't say. I can't say. Yeah. Yeah, you probably can't say. But <laughs> all right, we move on. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? Yeah, he was a little bollocks. <laughs> I was actually a very, 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 very good boy down there. You know, mm -hmm. I was, I was, I was completely depressed. The time, you know, I had a lot going on in my life. You know, I was my circumstances at the time were weren't great. You know, I was I was going to prison after table lodge. I wasn't for long over the table lodge, a week or two, and I went directly into prison for five years. So, mm. um, like I I was at the end of everything. You know, I was, I, was I, it, like. I had to. I had nothing mm. else. My mental health was gone. I was completely paranoid. Mm. My my family, my, 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 my wife, she was my partner at the time and my two kids were gone mm -hmm. if I didn't get this, you know, but I actually genuinely, and I always state this, Mick, I thought I was going in there 
they get something like a, a, an NCT. Mm. So I could go back out and drink normally. I hadn't mm. the foggiest mm. about addiction. Mm. I had been in treatment at the age of from 15 to about 18, mm. but there was no therapy. I had no mm. understanding of addiction. Mm. But when I went in there, I got that bit of an mm. understanding, yeah. you know, and it helped me yeah. massively. I think in a, in treatment centres, you, know, you get the awareness around addiction, mm. behaviours and stuff like that. You can't go back using mm. with, the, with the same head. Mm. No. It's, it doesn't work, so it doesn't. No, no, no there's a different way. Like, because you have But when you're awareness. ignorant, you'll get away with it. Yeah. You have the awareness that you yeah. never had before. Yeah. And you know what you're doing yeah. is wrong in all aspects. Yeah. You know? Well, it's just that the, like the addiction kind of, um, there's something about it that the addict doesn't let themselves in on, mm. you know, like I, I'm, I'd be addicted to tobacco. I mm. spent from 18 to about 33 or so smoking tobacco. So I'm, I really know about addiction mm. from that. And I know how easy it was to fool myself into thinking, sure, I'm not addicted at all, or mm. sure, it's mm. okay. What am I doing? Just having a cigarette. And that's present in all addiction. I mm. think there's a part of us that doesn't really wake up to the full reality of addiction. We keep kind of making excuses about it or letting ourselves off the hook about it mm. or minimizing it and all the things mm. we used to call denial. And people don't really see that. Even haven't been through treatment, people like the first thing people do after they go out of treatment in some cases is drink or use relapse. drugs. Relapse, we mm. call it, yeah. And it's because they still haven't got the full picture. Mm. They still haven't seen that there's something about the addiction will live on in them mm. and will keep prodding at them and mm. suggesting to them it's okay. What's the problem? Mm. Go, it's go called ahead. stinking thinking. I they call that stinking thinking. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that, that, and so your brain isn't fully in on the picture on what the addiction mm. is really like. And it can take people a lot of doom and bloom before they. I wake up to that as they call it an awakening in the 12 step fellowship mm. and, and multiple attempts yeah. as, at it as well like multiple attempts multiple yeah. treatment centers multiple yeah. sponsors and yeah. you know, like you know, very rarely would you just in my experience yeah. anyway would people just go to treatment and then that's it there's no hiccups <laughs> along the way yeah. it's nearly it's everybody wants process. to test the water again yeah. I'll, I'll be able to use differently this time yeah. do you know uh, another very important uh, factor around that relapse period is as well if your thinking starts to tell you right that it should go back out and this works across the board with every addiction it was very easy to give it up this time this is the yeah. money mm. we'll give it up again just yeah. go back out for another day or two and you'll be grand and we'll, we'll give it up again and we'll be fine that's right that's a part of that stick and taking pro yeah. process where the mind comes at you it's just it's just, it's so conniving. Mm -hmm. the mind, I was at that period you now, just the day I was going into prison, my mind was telling me, ah, sure, go in and get a load of drugs before mm. you go in. And like, I was saying, mm -hmm. no one answered the phone, anyway, thankfully. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't until afterwards I mm -hmm. realized, like, mm -hmm. it was the same form of thinking. Because mm -hmm. I said, I go in, I get stoned, and I come back off it again. Mm -hmm. You know, that was never going to happen. I go in there, I get stoned, and I continue. The problem is when people. Sometimes people go back out there and they never come back. Exactly. They don't come you know back. I mean? yeah. they, either, they might die of an overdose or they might just live on yeah. miserably. Yeah. I might find it very hard to get back from yeah. the, the shame of it all. But mm -hmm. how has table actually evolved over the last 25 years that you've been there for? Mm -hmm. 
Um, big evolutions have been the whole um, secondary treatment programs, you know, the fellowship houses and renewals, where we're realizing that four weeks wasn't long enough for a lot of clients, especially the younger ones mm. and the ones who were, you know, what we call poly addicted or had multiple addictions and had all sorts of other challenges uh, like education hadn't been a success. Uh, hadn't been good training for for employment, hadn't been good employment opportunities, um, coping maybe with family of origins, addictions or other mm. kind of traumatic events that that impaired their ability to cope with life successfully on a day to day basis. And we call them complex needs. Now, when we look at the national protocols for drug and alcohol services and you're looking at a comprehensive assessment, you've got 10 fields or whatever it is where you're, you're, you're getting a picture of what uh, every different part of a person's life is like. And as we, as time went on, we realized, gosh, these people have huge needs in Mm. in many areas of their lives. And what's the point in giving someone 28 days of of um, mm. treatment in Tabor Lodge and then sending them back to very precarious accommodation situations or sending them back into a family where there's alcoholism uh, that is active and or sending them back into an area where where the the local culture is um, for a lot of alcohol to be consumed or a lot of drugs to be available. Yeah. So we had to start developing longer um, treatment options for people and also seeing treatment as a kind of a, a stepping stone toward more independent living for people. Um, and so the, the, like people would come from all over the country to go to the fellowship houses and renewals because the other treatment centers were seeing that with, with, especially with younger, with a younger, um, patient group, um, that they really need to, the, the, the 28 days was just a kickstart that this really needed to lead to something else rather than someone simply going back into the, cause you take it in the, in, in, you know, the, 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 um, people who come into Tabor Lodge, in a lot of cases, they're coming from families and they're stuck in the family. They can't leave the family successfully. Yeah. For whatever reason. The other, their, their brothers and sisters might have left the family and got their partner and got their job and got their house and started their own family. And they're still in regular contact with the family and they come and go. But the, the addicted person is often stuck in that. I think it's probably the developmental trauma mm. that they can't separate out from the family and go and live independently. And from that, we decided to develop the extended secondary treatment programs. And then we have, we have three houses in Cork where people can go for what we call supported living. And so there's a series of stepping stones toward from people moving from being stuck to toward maybe having returned to education or having got a, a training program or uh, moving toward getting their own accommodation and just that whole, it's a, it's a kind of a, a comprehensive recovery mm. program that people get going uh, for themselves and their lives. And hopefully from that, then they can move back and forward uh, in and out of the family in the same way that all their siblings do. Mm. And that's kind of, that's what we call recovery, I guess. I like that period. I like the secondary treatment option as well. <clears throat> Definitely. Yeah. And I can understand why it's young people as well. Yeah. That it's, it, it's, um, there's more of an emphasis around because young people really have that mentality that they're too young 
to stop using. Yeah. They have the whole life ahead of them. Yeah. What am I going to do? How am I going to talk to a woman? Or how am yeah. I ever going to talk to a man without alcohol in my yeah. life or drugs in my life? Yeah. You know, it's, 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 it's like my life is over because yeah. I was like that. Yeah. You know, at a young age and I, yeah. I think the secondary treatment gives them that mm-hmm. opportunity to yeah. mature more yeah. and get the bit of counseling mm. and therapy that they yeah. need within the, the, the right environment, which yeah. is fellowship house and yeah. renewal. Yeah. Especially yeah. when they, they probably don't have like mortgages and stuff like that. They mm. can actually afford to take the extra time. Take the time. Yeah. Whereas no yeah. working professionals might be 28 days to get the yeah, treatment. That's right. They might have more sports at home. Yeah. And they definitely right. probably don't have the 12 weeks to give if they're, you know, waves and families and yeah, mortgages at home. That's so right. That's it's right. Great but to have but the people yes. with the more supports, when you do a comprehensive assessment with them, you find that in most of those fields, everything is fine. Like they have, they have their mortgage on their house. Yeah. Their family is intact. They've got a good training. They've got a good job. And so the addiction is what's derailing them. With the people with the comprehensive needs, it's like as if addiction is part of the profile and they just can't get their lives to take off. Mm. They keep kind of crash landing. Yeah. Um, and so the longer treatment intervention then. And it was interesting with the um, in COVID times when we were on lockdown, a real feature of the a secondary program, what we call now the integrated program, is that people would go down into Cork City at night and bring their recovery out onto the road and really practice it. Mm-hmm. So, Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. They're down in Cork City and they're meeting other people and they're going to 12-step meetings and they're walking back or they're getting the bus back. And it's a chance for them to test it all out. Yeah. That was the People were really deprived of that in COVID because we were kind of locked down and people weren't, yeah, weren't it allowed. To, it, was, it was a big deficit tough, for yeah. people not to be able to. I know. I remember mm. when I when I was in uh, St. Francis Farm Treatment Centre, I came into the Simon, Cork Simon Communities Recovery House out in Wilton. And uh, I know you've a step down house out mm-hmm. there too. And I used to meet all the lads, you know, at the bus stop on Southfield mm-hmm. Road and we used mm-hmm. to go to the meetings and then mm-hmm. come back mm-hmm. together and all like, but, um, you know, it's great because it, it builds a camaraderie mm-hmm. and a fellowship within the fellowship, you know? Yeah. Yes.
it's t- difficult to go to a meeting, but if there's two or three there going together, yeah. you try everything together at a safe, do you know what I mean? Because it's safety in numbers, you know? Yes. Yeah. I was doing a problem solving workshop. We have a series of workshops we do with people. And I was doing a problem solving workshop and I said to, I asked the group, what's the biggest problem uh, you're, you feel you're facing? And the group were pretty unanimous that they felt their biggest problem was if they had to walk into a room where there was people they didn't know. Mm. Now, that might seem like a small problem, mm. but for them, that was yeah. the biggest problem they had to cope with. Mm. And the whole thing about self-esteem mm. or the whole thing about being seen by other people and how do they look and what are they thinking? I of said me? it here before, right? Yeah. And it always stays with me. When I come out of treatment, the first meeting I went to was in South Parish, South Terrace, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. the community centre there. Yeah. And they went in there, right? And they, the jacket on. I was fucking sweating in the meeting. Yeah. Would I take out my car? <laughs> Not a hope. Yeah. For a fair, somebody would actually look over at me. Yeah. That's how insecure you would actually yeah, be all. going yeah. in there. And then yeah. after a while, you take off the jacket, you might open your mouth. Hi, my name that's is right. James. Good that's to right. be here. You're testing the waters. You're looking around. Mm-hmm. You're getting yeah. feedback. Yeah. But you know what? That, that led us to the late, late show mm. where you're confident of speaking. That's right. But it all starts, it starts going there. into the meeting. Yeah. Yeah. Or you meet people and say, how are the 12-step meetings going? And say, I don't really like them. And you find out then that they, they, they aren't talking at the meeting mm. and they're thinking they're going to get something just from listening to what other people are saying. Mm. But the whole thing kind of kicks off when you find your own voice in it and you're 100%. able to talk about what's going on for you and who are you. And, and then when you start getting, you know, good feedback and well done and... Yeah. Um, keep coming back and but it's you start taking the risk, isn't it? It's taking the risk. It's a, a, a huge a, thing. Yeah. It's stepping out of your comfort zone and feeling like you've conquered yeah. something. Yeah. In spite of yourself, you want your mouth yeah. and you have to get great feedback. And then you, it allows others to see that, like, let's say if I was in a meeting, I look over at Timmy and he never speaks in the meeting. I'm not going to really approach him after the meeting because mm-hmm. he's a bit closed off, you know. But Timmy opens a meeting, then I go over and it's an opportunity mm-hmm. then for me to give you feedback. Yeah. Maybe go for a cup of coffee, build networks and relations, mm-hmm. you know. That's right. You have to, even yeah. if you just open your mouth, yeah. hi, my name is James, good to be here, I leave it at that. That's right. The next time you might say another two words, Yeah. before you know it, you're chairing yeah. it, you're doing yeah, the, you're right. getting involved in the fellowship and stuff. Yeah, I have right. a question around... Um, since COVID, I know you mm. must have been bombarded by people for to get assessed, mm. you know. But do you see a massive rise within addiction uh, across the board since COVID because people were locked in their houses and mm. the boredom factor kicked in and people mm. were were left with their mind? Mm. Because when people mm. are kept busy, they're mm. not drinking as much, mm. they're not using as much, not gambling as much, amongst other things. Has this multiplied mm-hmm. since COVID. Mm-hmm. We're now providing residential treatment at two settings, one in Tabor Lodge and one in Fellowship House. Fellowship House is what we call an integrated program and that has 12 beds um, and we're targeting toward younger people with the more complex needs. The demand for that service has gone up through the roof in the last 12 months. Okay. Um, with the Tabor Lodge, uh, it's generally an older client group, and we'd get a lot of calls from people who had been in isolation, mm-hmm. um, and you know they couldn't get visits from their their, their grown up kids or their grandkids, mm-hmm. um, and that was very challenging for people. I can imagine, yeah. And and the, you you could see the drink problem growing gradually. 
where there's so much time in our hands or it's been a long day and they think I'll just have a drink. And we've heard lots of stories of people saying that that cut to the point where they just didn't know how to stop drinking. Mm. That's when they reached out for uh, reached out to us for help. They just couldn't stop drinking. They couldn't understand why they can't just. So the the the. They had become addicted, but there was no kind of tradition of addiction. They probably wouldn't have become addicted if they hadn't been living in those strange yeah. kind of circumstances that lockdown they brought were. us. And, you know, if somebody's listening to this right now, Mick, what are the procedures for somebody to get treatment within the table lodge yeah. and uh, fellowship house? Well, people can call us themselves. We don't need to be referred by anybody. Um, and then we take calls and filter calls on to we have one person whose job is to call people back and to do a piece of telephone assessment and then arrange for a face-to-face meeting for what we call it the initial assessment as far as the uh, national protocols are concerned um, and that's a, a, a meeting that takes about an hour taking a lot of information about people um, and making a suggestion then for what the next step should be um, Oftentimes, it's quite clear by the time the person gets to meet us face to face that it's the treatment program that they need to come on to. So uh, as a result of that meeting, we would suggest that they do come in for treatment and we'd have a what we call a pre-treatment plan that people would go away and try, maybe see their doctor, maybe try 12-step meetings, maybe try and cut down on their substance uh, mm. and just to start their, all, their own um, learning process about uh, what are they suggesting that I do? And what are they saying is the matter with me? And what sense does that make to me? And then people start their own assessment. Um, and then that would lead to an admission into mm. the Tabor Lodge or the Tabor Fellowship uh, unit. But if, if someone made a call this evening, the chances are we'd see them before this day next week and that they could be in treatment um, the same day the following week. Mm. So it's not a very long waiting time. Oh, and it, where does the pre-treatment process come in then? Well, pre-treatment is something we stopped doing in it? COVID and okay. it's become very clear that it's something we need to start doing again. Mm. Because um, like you mentioned about mm. what it's like when people land in treatment and how intense it is from yeah. beginning to end. So that um, that's very demanding for people. I actually yeah. done the pre-treatment process myself. Did you? Yeah, I'd done it for about three or four weeks. Yeah. And what I found from doing that was I found the people that really wanted yeah, to get recovery that's, that's into it. their lives yeah. stayed there. That's it, you know, yeah. Because while I was there, there was a number of people in the group and I could see straight away mm-hmm. um, the ones that really, really wanted it, including yeah. myself. You know, I, I was had been to my doctor now and all at this stage. I was seeing a counsellor in the week. Okay. I was going right. to, trying to get the meetings. Yes. I was going through that period that, oh, I'm not going to the meetings at all. They're not for me. Do you yes. know? Do yes. you know that mentality around the A and the NA? Yeah. You know, I had that because that yeah. stigma around the A was, yeah. I'm not an alcoholic. Yeah. So, my views of an alcoholic were the, somebody who was on the drink with a bottle of wine. Yeah. You know, that's yeah. how it mm. was. I was brought up around, mm. sure. you know. Um, but my, all that changed when I went into the Herbalogy yeah. and I went to pre-treatment. I started understanding that mm. because I'm not drinking seven days a week. Doesn't mean I'm not an alcoholic. Yeah. You know, I'm an alcoholic because of what I done and drink, because I couldn't stop. And yeah. I went on a binge for a week, two weeks, three weeks. Yes. Stopped for a month, stopped for two months. Mm-hmm. 
but my life was chaotic mm-hmm. any of those points I could my life yeah. could have been ended at any time I started up a pre-treatment group mm. in Cool Mine well I took what they did in Cool Mine in Dublin and brought it to Cork we mm. call it pre-entry group mm. but we soon realised that it's not just Cool Mine so in that group in Cork City we have people go, that go into Tabor Fellowship mm-hmm. Ashiree it doesn't matter where they're going mm-hmm. but it's, you have to get people used to sitting in a group mm-hmm. talking about addiction mm-hmm. and their feelings and what's going on from because mm-hmm. that, that essentially is mm-hmm. what residential treatment is mm-hmm. so if people are interested in that look they can contact G and signpost people as well mm-hmm. there's also funding options available I know mm-hmm. people will think that Tabor Lodge is very expensive and it can be but there's funding options available for everybody whether mm-hmm. you have a medical card or health insurance or whatever so th- that shouldn't be a, mm-hmm. a barrier either and um, if they can contact you anyway to be signposted all that stuff mm-hmm. but something that is working really well between our board of our organisations mm-hmm. is the case management piece where mm-hmm. if, if I'm working with somebody um, and for the community side of it I can refer them into yourselves and they do the residential then I'd link in with them when they're in there and then when they're getting out they link back in with me mm-hmm. and I support them then through the recovery process mm-hmm. you know and that seems to be working really well doesn't mm-hmm. it yeah yeah, the whole emphasis on the care plan and the shared care plan that it's not just um, it's not just one agency's care plan. It's just different agencies like like you the work cool mine is doing just yeah. mental health agencies, homeless agencies, addiction treatment agencies. And there's more of an ethos of sharing the care with the client of empowering the client at the center of the whole caring process. But there's a number of professional agencies coming together to support them along the continuum of care. Yeah. It's not the case that one agency does all the caring now. It's a, with the complex needs, there's a, there's a, a, a diversity. There's a, there's a variety of agencies need to. And that's certainly something that has developed in Tabor Lodge in the last 10 years or so, where we're getting better at sharing the care with, with, with other agencies um it's not a case of one agency has all the mm. all that that a that a, a, a client and needs sometimes people's lives are they they might need support for yeah. a year or two yeah like you could be linking them with the car clients because at different stages of your life you're going to need different supports yeah. you know yeah but obviously you provide the residential yeah. and the, the secondary piece yeah. you can support them in, no. indefinitely no but that's why and it's great to have that collaboration and people are not like competing treatment providers it's mm. the person is in the middle and we'll help the person that's great yeah. do you know what i mean that's, yeah. that's, that's the way fantastic. it should be and that the, the the whole dual diagnosis thing is is coming up now as well for uh, 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 it's the same conversation really it's not like oh you're either you've either got a mental health problem or you've got an addiction problem and you go there to start that one out and go here to start this one out and you have to do that one first and then that one second mm. we're now seeing that we work together with it, the, the emphasis is on what are the needs of the person uh, at this point in time. And rather than them having to take their problems in some order, where all the agencies come together to work holistically with whatever the client needs at this point in time. Uh, I've one of my project workers on my team. He's linked in with um, psychiatry and mental health in one of the regions, you know, and he's positioned there for a couple of days a week and he's a part of the team. 
you know, a mm-hmm. multidisciplinary yeah. team there, you know, and that's working really well. And it's mm-hmm. great to have that collaboration mm-hmm. that, yeah, you need psychologists, social yeah. work, mental health. Mm-hmm. But then if there's drug and alcohol, you don't write, yeah. here's an appointment, go over there. Mm-hmm. Let's bring them into the team mm-hmm. and, you know, have them on site. So yeah. it's great that, they, but it's, it's evolving all the it's time. It's evolving all the time. People yeah. might be thinking now about eating disorders and gambling. Mm-hmm. Do we support people like that too? We support people with um, a gambling uh, disorder. We don't support people if if eating disorder is their only uh, issue. Um, but we, but a lot of people who are in treatment will have eating eating disorder issues as well. But it's not. We don't treat it as a standalone issue. But we do. We're treating more and more people with gambling disorder. There's a huge increase in problematic gambling. Um, a lot of our cocaine addicts who are running up, running up big bills and getting a lot of intimidation. That's a huge problem at the yeah. moment, isn't it? Huge problem at the moment. Yeah. Like there's a, we, there's a lot of it up the north side as well, yeah. where we're from young people taking their lives and everything, you know, yeah. because of, um, huge drug debts that they're yeah. racking up to you know, and, yeah. um, parents being put under pressure. Yeah. And yeah. so that's been, you're, you're seeing that too. Well, we, our family program as usual, it's a, it's a, it's a, um, a frequent conversation in our family program where families come in now they're after getting their, their family member into treatment. They love them the bits, but they've got these guys coming to the door threatening to, hurt children or threatening to damage property if they don't come up with a sum of money that seems to have been plucked out of the air. And mm. if that's paid, they'd be back the next night for another sum of money. And the stress that those families are under is quite incredible. And then they're, they're caught in the buy-in that this is all because of this guy who's in Tabor Lodge is this, this trouble that this guy's after bringing. And so it's such a conflict for the family. And that must be so difficult as well for the person that's in, in treatment Huge. because yeah. they're worried about their family member at home and they can't really focus on yeah. the, the therapy side of it yeah. because their head is on. Full of fear. Oh, yeah. 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 Full of fear. And also they just have themselves written off for the problems they're after causing for yeah. their families. Um, and then we'd say to them, why don't you invite your family to come down and think, Jesus, I've put them through enough. I've caused yeah. enough trouble. I can't even ask them to do another thing for me. Um, usually the family are just waiting to, for, for the opportunity to come and help, just like you yeah. were talking about, just like you were talking about earlier. Um, is yeah. that becoming more and more frequent? And as younger and younger people are getting into these deaths? Yes. It is. And that's where gambling comes in too, because a lot of them think I can make, where's the easiest way to make a lot of money? You know, if you back a winner at 10 to 1 and the 230 at Nace, your, your 100 euros become a thousand euro and, and people get seduced into that. And then before you know it, the whole addiction process is starting to play out with regard to the gambling Mm. too. And the whole denial about the, the gambling being a problem as well. What about crack cocaine? Yes. So I know in other residential treatments, the, the profile of the client has moved from um, a kind of a placid heroin yeah. user yeah. to more crack cocaine. And mm-hmm. that has led to more incidences of aggression mm-hmm. and conflict within mm-hmm. the treatment center. Mm-hmm. Have you seen that too? Within the treatment center? Yeah. Like mm-hmm. as people are 
less pe- people are coming off the crack cocaine tend to be more volatile yeah. than people that would have been coming off heroin. Yeah, it's totally different. Yeah, the the heroin addict is easy to work with from yeah. that point of view. The the cocaine and the crack, it's people getting very aggressive and yeah. very energized. And we like people to be drug free when they um, yeah when they're admitted. Um, so we would get like it'd be. As the economy recovered and young men were picking up work and getting money and getting into cocaine and running up debts, we did find that was a feature of life for a period. And then the family had asked them to leave, like there might be a, um, a married young man in his early 30s with small kids and the wife saw there was no option, but to, mm. because of how crazy it got with, with, with cocaine. And, yeah. and, and, and then if a guy had gotten into business for himself and was being successful in business and the business was growing, um, to keep up with the demands and the pace of it all and meeting people's orders and customers' demands, started using cocaine and then that spiraled out of control mm. and run into debts. And then the yeah. family just feel there's no option here but to ask a guy to leave. That kind of um, profile was frequent at Taper Lodge. Well, you raised a, a good point there about um, you, you You need people to have, be relatively stable before you take them in. Yeah. But that brings up the point of a lack of a detox facility yeah. in Cork. It's yeah. a huge problem for us, isn't it? Yeah. Like we're always referring people into Leinster. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, so do you foresee uh, detox facility coming to Cork anytime soon? Or? Yeah, I believe there is one planned for, for, for Cork. And uh, I, th- I think the HSE have plans to provide detox beds in Cork. Excellent. It is good. Yeah, it is. And it is essential because it's, it's often it's the hardest part of the treatment journey. Yeah. Is to that initial stabilization, that staying safe as you wean off, as yeah. you start mm. to stop. That's the, and it is under, it's definitely under, but under resource. Like Tabor, Tabor and Fellowship are not alone in terms of they want no. a level of stability. Mm. Every treatment center in Ireland wants that. Yes. Even the ones that do provide detox, yes. they still want your analysis to say you're only taking what you're prescribed, yes. you know? Yes. So you still have to be off the other drugs, but, yes. you know, like. There's some measure of stabilization yeah, needed before sometimes treatment Sometimes it's very difficult. It's very difficult. And a big problem that I see at the moment in drug and alcohol services is is um, street benzodiazepines. Mm-hmm. So you have people that are taking benzodiazepines, but they're not prescribed them. Mm-hmm. So the GP won't give them a detox because they're not supposed to be in them in the first place. Yes. They can't give a clear urine because they're taking these in the stainless system for so long. And then they're stuck in limbo between they can't give clear urinalysis to get into the treatment center. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They can't get the detox to get into that treatment center. Mm-hmm. And that's a very difficult space for them mm-hmm. to be in, you know? Yeah. Whereas before, like, I don't know, there wasn't so much street benzos when mm-hmm. I was around, mm-hmm. you'll get them off the GP. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot more restrictions on mm-hmm. prescribing that stuff now. Mm-hmm. But the demand is still there. Mm-hmm. So people go it's to the internet, more, do you know what I mean? It's definitely even more because of the, the, the amount of cocaine that's being consumed. You know, mm-hmm. it's definitely more. I have a question for you in terms of what's your interpretation, okay, of addiction? Right. Mine is this, okay. Mm-hmm. I believe I became addicted to alcohol, drugs, gambling, amongst other things, because <clears throat> I didn't learn as a young child to be able to cope with emotions. Okay. I went through my life caught up in my mind constantly, mm-hmm. caught up in my head. And when I came across substances at the beginning, mm-hmm. the head stuff was gone. Mm-hmm. And 
my thinking then was consumed about how I was going to use next, where I was going to get the money for it, mm-hmm. you know, the life of it. And that was, I was consumed like that for many, many years mm-hmm. until my early 30s. Is it quite similar to my understanding to it? Mm. Yes, my understanding of addiction will be similar to that. Mm. And that they, it, it, I know you've had um, Gabor Mate on. Mm. And, you know, you don't ask why do you, what is it? You don't ask why the addiction, you ask why the pain. Yeah, yeah. that's that, it, yeah. That the addiction starts out as the solution to another mm. problem. Mental health. Mental Sometimes health, it gets yeah. across, like some people, they ask what comes first, the addiction or the mental health. Yeah. I think it's the mental health. Yeah. The mental health issues are going yeah. to be there. But well, well, they get worse. Make mentioned a while ago about developmental trauma. Yeah. Now, yeah. that's a hot kind of a thing at the moment. Well, in relative, I know in sociology, criminology, you know, adverse childhood experiences has been like a, mm. a determinant for criminal behavior down the line. But mm. like this has been known in psychology for a very long time. Mm. So like... Th- you know the profile of people that come through your service mm. would they would most of them invariably have some sort of a childhood trauma yeah. abuse neglect yeah. and stuff like that yeah well, i know you had sharon lambert on here too and sharon is good to mm. send us students from the uh, department of applied psychology yeah we had one student did a piece of work with 50 clients um checking out their aces and their mental health and uh, I don't remember the figures now, but there was a huge prevalence of four aces or more. Adverse childhood experiences. A- adverse childhood experiences. There's a questionnaire with 10 questions in it. And if you have four, if you have four mm. of these adversities that you've been coping with as a child, um, your chances of becoming addicted, having mental health issues later in life and having histories of self-harm, homelessness, reduced lifespan, they go up through the roof if you've had four adverse experiences to cope with. And that's pretty common if you take one is that your parent, that a parent was addicted. Uh, that you experience physical, emotional, mm. or sexual abuse, that you experience physical or emotional neglect, mm. uh, that you had a family member that was incarcerated, that you had, um, um, that there was somebody in the family who. Domestic violence. Uh, domestic one. violence, if you witnessed the domestic violence. So, you know, a lot of our clients would have a cluster of those experiences. Yeah. I mean, yeah. we probably all have some kind of aces somewhere in our and background. A criticism of the aces is, is that it's very focused on the individual out of the family, but yeah. growing up in poverty yeah. in, in in an area that's impoverished and deprived yeah. is another, it can be another yeah. contributing factor. It not. is, yeah. I've seen this, um, I don't know, it was a documentary or a clip, okay? There was this lady, it's an American lady she went into a prison yard Mm. she was surrounded by prisoners in a circle like they're all outside her and she named out the aces Mm. and she she said if you disass whatever walk one step into the middle every single man that was on that yard had over four aces. I'm trying mm. to picture Sharon, Sharon Lambert yeah. doing that in car prison. Yeah. She get a belt of handball. <laughs> <laughs> but like, it's yeah. just so prevalent. It's on YouTube. That, yeah. that video is on yeah. YouTube. It's on YouTube, James. Yeah. yeah. I can't yeah. remember the name of it, but it's, if you type Rowan, in the aces, prison, prison, prison video with aces, I'm yeah. sure it'll come up. But that developmental trauma is, is, um, I think that's crucial now for addiction treatment because, um, Taper, uh, one um, very important feature of Taper Group is that the program is delivered by counsellors. Mm. 
um, and we want councillors to be well trained and we want them to be registered. Um, and a well trained councillor has done their own work on their own personal development. And when they sit with a client who has developmental trauma, the client relaxes more if they know the counsellor has done their... It isn't even anything that they know. It's just that they the counsellor is able to offer more. <laughs> they can feel it. Yeah, uh, they, can they can relate. This, this, is, a safe, this is a safe place, yeah. yeah. And then in the developmental trauma, all happens in the relationship between the child and the parent, let's say, in, mm. in the vast majority of cases. Um, and so it is the trusted other that has caused the upset or the disturbance. So when the client comes into the addiction treatment and the treatment has been delivered by the addiction counsellor, the client picks up that this person is actually safe for me to start opening up a bit with. Yeah. Um, and that's where, and then even if the relationship goes wrong, like even if there is a rupture in the relationship, the counselor doesn't say, well, that's, I'm finished with you then, if that's the way it's going to be. The counselor is good at repairing the relationship and going back to talk things out, give it another go. And so, and that's just like all good relationships where there's, there's problems and yeah. we need to, you know, mm -hmm. iron things out and get over things and carry, keep going with the relationship. So I think that's a real important feature of the developmental trauma and the well-trained counselor. We'd be very strong in Tabor Lodge on our programs being delivered by, um, qualified and registered counselors. But even, mm -hmm. even in, um, like any job really where you're helping vulnerable people, you yes. need to have your own stuff worked on. I yes. don't know, was it Gabba Marte or Bessel van der Kork or one of the psychologists we had on any, where they were talking about like, you can't help another person work through their stuff if you're not aware of your own triggers right. or you have your own baggage because That's they'll right. pick up on it yeah. and you won't be able to do it and you'll be triggered and, and, and yeah. they'll lose you then. And yeah. That means then their experience with a counsellor then at the beginning yeah. was, wasn't great yeah. and it affects their recovery process as well because they might want to go back because Indeed. of that initial experience. Indeed. And you, you, you could have a PhD in psychotherapy. Yeah. Well, obviously to get to that stage, you'll have to do a lot of work. But yeah. the, the point I'm making is you could have a master's and a PhD, but if you don't have your own personal development done, mm. it won't be as half as good to you. Uh, uh, indeed. And, and the, the um, like the... If the counselor hasn't done the work, they are stopping the client from bringing in those issues that are going to touch on what the counselor isn't comfortable with. Yeah, true. And that true. might not even be verbalized or it mightn't even be aware of it. Yeah. Or the client even picks up, I can't talk about that with this guy. It's not okay to talk. Mm. They just know it. They mightn't even be conscious of it. It just mm. never makes yeah. it onto the agenda. Yeah. So I think that's a hugely important feature of, of addiction treatment, not just in Tabor mm. Group, but going forward. I think if we're going to be working with people with a lot of ACEs and a lot of developmental trauma, then there's an onus on us to become really good at helping people recover from that kind of we'd adversity. Go, we'd go smarry here had, a few yeah. weeks ago, like, yeah. and he, we made this point, like, this is why some people have stopped from graduating and told to go and complete yeah. that personal development because you have to have that stuff in order yeah. before you can actually go into the field. That's right. Mm. It's a pleasure talking to you, Mick. Okay, mm. yeah. Enjoyed yourself. You I did, yeah, it's fine. Are we, the hour flew. Are we done? Yeah, that was, that was I think good. we covered so much here. Yeah. 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 So I think yeah. a lot of people will get very, very important I information so. from this. And yeah, um, that'd be great. Hopefully enough information to give them 
the inspiration to move on to that next step, yeah, which may yeah. be treatment or sec yeah. pre or maybe pre-treatment or whatever it may be, yeah. even walking in the door to their doctor. They might not even know what to do, but oh, they'll pick up the phone to you. Yeah. Pick and up the phone, you yes. know, You've all the signposts for the yes. different services, yeah. you know, all that. Yeah. You're even on social media these days and That's all. Right. So you can be contacted very easily. So um, Indeed. Great to have you at the table. Okay, thank you very thank much. Thank you very much. Thanks and I'm sure we'll Mick. touch base again soon. Thank you. God bless. Thank you. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello? Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast, and I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher, because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait. Is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher.